welcome to another episode of On The Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined on the virtual couch by the CIO of a listed reserve, which is a crypto fund. Mr. Daniel Pickering has joining me on the couch today. And it's an absolute delight to meet you, Daniel. This fund uh, specializes in Bitcoin, and it's been going for the last five years. And I have to say the results are pretty impressive in terms of their performance. And it aims to provide investors with high quality investment funds to access digital currency through a trusted, transparent and liquid investment vehicle. That's a big mouthful from the website. But Daniel has been the CIO since the launch of the fund in 2018. Daniel's also from uh, my old country. Uh, he's held various senior finance roles in London before moving to Australia and was previously the CFO of William Hill Australia. So welcome, Daniel. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Henry. Great to be here. It's uh, it's really great to meet you, I've got to say, and uh, I'm really looking forward to being educated uh, because I am a bit of a crypto novice. But before we kick off the podcast, just a small disclaimer. As always, this is general advice only. So please contact your own financial advisor regarding any of the thoughts, ideas or insights in this podcast. It is general advice only. So Daniel, first off, being a crypto novice, why should I be investing in cryptocurrencies? What, what's what's the, the attraction for me as a complete novice? Well, we, we generally distinguish for uh, investors uh, between Bitcoin and then everything else, and perhaps everything else you could categorize as crypto. So um, if, if I start with Bitcoin, first of all, because that's the, the sort of easiest thing for people to understand. And really, the thesis of our fund is that the current financial system is probably um, broken in our view. And if, if you look at um, fiat currencies around the world, in first world countries, I'm not talking second world countries here, so Australia, the UK, the US, the money supply roughly um, doubles every six years. And that's been happening since the mid 70s. And it's becoming increasingly uh, difficult for that you know, basis of value assessment to work. We don't think it does work. And we think that technology has provided a better solution in Bitcoin uh, as a reference point for value. So uh, we see, and Bitcoin is the largest part of our fund, but we see it capturing tremendous value over the next decade and by simply being the reference point against which other assets are measured. I'll give you an example, right? There's no point a fund manager, say, coming up to me and saying, look, I've beaten the US dollar by 20% this year. And when, you know, 40% of all US dollars were printed in, in the last 12 months, you know, it, it, it's not a good, um, it's not a good reference point. And we really think that Bitcoin's going to capture a, a great deal of value in that area. So that, that's number one. I think as a store of value, uh, we think it's got tremendous prospects. We think those prospects have been borne out in its performance. And then you've got, in our view, everything else. And this is where people talk about crypto. So if something has some aspect of cryptocurrency embedded in it, it's probably captured by crypto. And I think in those categories, there are some excellent um, pieces of software that, that are going to capture a lot of value. And I can give you another example. But finance, again, lends itself tremendously to software. Um, software is brilliant at settling transactions. Uh, it's brilliant in sort of behaving in a specific way. And if you look at, say, stable coins, so those digital representations of, of fiat currencies, 
they've exploded over the last four years, went out to $200 billion in, uh, in stable coins um, in circulation. And that number almost never goes down. Once a fiat dollar becomes a stable coin, it almost never comes out. So we don't see the market cap of stable coins, even during a sort of crisis in cryptocurrency, it never goes down. And that's because these digital representations of the dollar are just more useful than the original version, right? It's much easier to send a digital dollar from one person to another, especially internationally, than it is to use a bank. And so we just think, you know, the financial infrastructure, I've just given you one example in a stable coin, but all the financial infrastructure is up for grabs um, via this technology. And we think um, the whole plumbing will be rewritten and all of the value that's represented in that sector uh, is going to be captured by um, software and, and cryptocurrency. So I think, I mean, there's two examples there of why I think it's a highly investable asset class. It's obviously new, it's obviously volatile, um, and, you know, we're familiar with those um, those ups and downs over the sort of four and a half years we've been doing it. Now, Daniel, just to go back a step, for fiat currencies are ones that basically are created um, by central banks out of, with paper money effectively, and you can print as much as you like, as we have seen uh, in the last few years, as you rightly point out. I remember when I was uh, a young man growing up in the late 70s, 80s UK, there was an absolute addiction to money supply. And the M3 and the M2 was possibly the most uh, focused on kind of economic uh, number that we that I'd ever seen at the time but it was it was more than CPI it was more than GDP it was quite extraordinary but it, it, it occurs to me I guess that you know we're talking about fiat currencies that are created out of out of nothing by central banks printing money isn't that the same with digital currencies aren't you creating something out of just ones and zeros with a digital currency well what what's the real difference there well I, well, I think as far as um, Bitcoin's concerned, you know exactly how many of those there will be um, at all points uh, in history. So I can tell you the exact supply curve of Bitcoin from now until we get to 21 million coins in the year 2140, right? So we're 120 years away from 21 million coins. We're currently at about 18 and a half million. Okay, so I know the exact supply curve and everybody in the market knows the exact supply curve. And at any point in time, I can query my own node. It will tell me exactly how many Bitcoins are out there. Right now, try doing that with the US dollar. <laughs> like how many, how many are out there? I mean, nobody actually knows because it's, you know, you've got euro dollars, you've got dollars issued by the Federal Reserve. It's an enormous number that goes up every single day. Right. So. The, the, the problem that, that Bitcoin has solved is in terms of provable scarcity, right? That, that's actually the solution that it's providing. We know at all points in time how many of them there are, and we know at all points in time also in history how many there will be at any given point in time. That, that's, that's all it's done. It's as simple as that. And, and that's very different to a fiat currency. Um, fiat, obviously, well, is, is Latin for by decree, right? It, it's money because I say it's money. Um, and there's a big difference between the two. And you hinted there also at, at sort of this backed by nothing, um, which we often face that question uh, from investors. You know, Bitcoin's just, you know, as you say, it's ones and zeros and it's backed by nothing. In fact, that, that's not correct. It, it, there's a tremendous cost to the production of Bitcoin, right? It costs an enormous amount uh, in energy to produce a Bitcoin. And that's its backing. I know 
when I receive a Bitcoin that someone spent a fortune um, mining it. It's tremendously expensive to do, which is why every 10 minutes, the block reward to a miner these days is around a quarter of a million US dollars every 10 minutes. It's extremely expensive to produce. I was reading somewhere, and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, that if Bitcoin mining was a country, it would be the 33rd largest energy user out of all the countries on the planet. Yeah, and I think that I think that's right. And and it's often presented as a negative. Yeah, people say, well, it just uses too much energy, and that's to miss the point. Right, the energy consumption is the value proposition. Right. That's what's backing it. It's tremendously costly to produce. It's like when you go back to when people used gold, right? They knew gold was hard to find. It took a lot of energy to find it, a lot of energy to mine it, and it still does. And that's why it's viewed as valuable. You know, there are shinier things than gold, and there are heavier things than gold. It's just that it's extremely costly to produce. And the cost of production is really, really important to Bitcoin. It's the basis of the security model. Uh, it's the basis of the value proposition. And, you know, we, we often face the environmental question, well, if it's going to use as much energy as a currency, as a country, that, that surely that is bad. But it, actually, if you look at Bitcoin, there's no more environmentally friendly industry than Bitcoin mining, right? More than 50% of the energy it uses is renewable. There isn't an industry in the world anywhere near that benchmark. Indeed, there aren't many countries near that benchmark. There's a few in Scandinavia um, that are sort of up at sort of 80% renewable because they're sort of, you know, they're built on volcanoes. But generally, most countries are down in the sort of 2030s. Bitcoin's over 50 uh, and rising. And so I, I don't shy away from the energy production, uh, the energy consumption, I should say. It, it's, but it is crucial. It, it absolutely goes to the heart of the value proposition. So given that, I'd imagine that with the energy prices going up, that that should be uh, naturally playing into the Bitcoin going up kind of argument as well as oil price rises and energy rises. Bitcoin should rise as well. Is that uh, is that true? Well, it, it is and it isn't, right? The trick to Bitcoin mining is to find the cheapest source of electricity, right? So if you're a Bitcoin miner, the, the vectors that you're concerned about is processor speed because you're trying to solve a problem. That's what mining is. And then the price of energy. And the beauty of Bitcoin is that the Bitcoin miners are out there trying to find the lowest cost source of energy, which generally you'll find is renewable. Because if you own a hydroelectric plant and it's producing electricity at three o'clock in the morning, nobody wants it, right? You've, you've got grids all over the world, including in Australia, where there are times when energy prices go negative. And it's great for Bitcoin miners to go there and put their equipment in there and stabilize the grid, right? So they're, they're actually doing a tremendous job of equalizing the energy price around the world because wherever energy prices are sort of suppressed or cheap relative to somewhere else, you'll find Bitcoin miners turning up. And they're providing tremendous support for renewable energy as well because what you find with renewables... It produces a lot of energy, but not always when you want it. So where's the demand come from? And these guys are providing a lot of that demand, which they can turn on and off at will, which is which is helpful. I don't necessarily think that rising energy prices correlate with rising Bitcoin prices, um, because actually the protocol is a bit more sophisticated than that, because if energy prices doubled, you'd find Bitcoin difficulty fell and mining would get easier. But um, nonetheless, 
you know, they're intrinsically linked energy and Bitcoin. So given that Bitcoin is, I guess, an, an investment, um, what, what is it used for in, in the real world? What, what, where is it being used at the moment in the real world? Are people actually transacting with it for, for big things or even little things? Well, I, I mean, if you if you look at turnover on a daily basis, right? So, you know, Bitcoin's daily turnover would be about four or five times what the ASX trades, right? So there's huge liquidity, which is actually quite important for our fund because, um, you know, liquidity is our sort of number one component before we put something in the fund. So there's huge trade in Bitcoin daily. Now, a lot of that is just pure trade like you'd see in FX. Then you've got the, the people that are actually using Bitcoin um, in anger. So for transactions, good examples there. You, you may have seen El Salvador's adopted it as, as a currency. You've got a lot of people using it there on the second layer on the Lightning Network uh, to transact all the time. Um, I think that the majority of people that own Bitcoin are holding it uh, and they're holding it because it's a scarce resource. And finding scarce resources that are easily accessible and easy to store at low cost, that's not that easy, right? Gold's a problem. Where do you put it? Uh, people can steal it. Uh, you can't take it with you overseas if you if you need to. Um, so it, it, it provides, you know, a very good basis for people to store their wealth. So I think you find the majority of people are using it for that. And increasingly, in some countries, particularly low-income countries, it's used for trade because it's a much better currency than, say, the Argentine peso, or we see it used a lot in Africa as well. Um, where currencies tend to be uh, tend to be weaker and more prone to debasement. So I think you'll find, in terms of adoption, you'll find it start um, weak as currencies first, and it will slowly make its way up uh, the value chain of currencies. Uh, it was. I must admit, people talk about Bitcoin uh, when they're talking about it in terms of like a digital gold. It's, it's the the twenty first century equivalent of gold. It's it's a hedge against inflation, all that sort of stuff. It hasn't really, mind you, not. Gold hasn't either really performed as you would have expected with all this geopolitical risk, the Ukraine, uh, energy prices, uncertainty, higher interest rates, etc. Is is that something that um, is now going to kind of be debunked by the investment community that it is this hedge against inflation? Because we haven't really seen that. It, it actually predicated inflation by, you know, it had a massive run before we had inflation. It's, it's, do you see it as a hedge against inflation? Well, and I, and I think that's right. I think it, a lot of people front ran um, what they saw coming in inflation last year. So if you look at um, the big private wealth firms at the end of last year, so um, certainly Credit Suisse and UBS in Europe were advising their clients, this is end of 2020, you know, get an allocation in this asset class. And that's when we really started to see it move sort of 14 months ago to sort of to front run really the situation that we now find ourselves in. I don't, I don't really think, um, so let's say in the last six months when the inflation has really come to fruition in the US, not, not apparently not yet in Australia, but I'm sure it's here. Um, <laughs> we're, Bitcoin's gone down, right? And so people are making this, this connection. Well, you know, inflation's gone from 2% to 7% and Bitcoin's gone down, it's not a hedge. I think you've got to zoom out a little bit and go, well, you know, people are, have been onto this for quite a long time now, like two to three years. And indeed, the Bitcoin community has been talking about inflation for a lot longer than that since day one. Right. Um, and its performance over that period has been tremendous. So I think as an inflation hedge, 
let, well, let's put it this way. Every single currency has lost 99% of its value against Bitcoin more than once since it launched. <laughs> so I'd say it's going okay. And it's just a matter of the time we can choose. Now, now, your fund has done extraordinarily well. I've got to say, you look at the uh, the performance of the fund since inception is up 67%. Uh, the ASX 200 is up 8.4 and gold up 12. 670% actually, I think. Is it? I'm yeah. taking this from your website. 6.7 times you'll find the fund is up. Yeah. You might need to adjust your website. Oh, good. Um, but uh, according to the website, 67.57% since inception per annum. Oh, per annum, that is correct, yes. Yes. All right. Well, um, so you've been going, what, five years? Yeah. Excellent. Um, so so what's what's... If if I'm uh, if I want to get involved in investing in Bitcoin through your fund, what's the process? Do I go through? Do I? Is it open to uh, retail investors or is it just sophisticated investors? No, it's sophisticated investors only. So um, we uh, we're a wholesale fund. So we, we have our own AFSL, obviously, and yeah, we're and we're quite. You know, the, the process is quite simple. You reach out to us, send out an application form, and you know, I say to all investors that invest in the fund, it is a volatile sector. And you should expect, you know, to be to be in the fund for sort of four to five years. And you should expect over that the course of that journey to be at some point down sort of 50 percent from where you were at some other point. Right. So I make that clear to everyone that, that comes in. It is volatile. The performance has been tremendous, as you point out. Um, but, you know, prepare for that sort of drawdown. They, they always come. We've had three of them. We're currently in the middle of one. We're sort of 35 percent down from where we were. In October last year, and um, so you know, and that's quite important for clients to think about when you're thinking about position size. What do I what do I put in the fund? Um, you know, you've got to be you've got to be comfortable that um, there's going to be volatility along the way. But yeah, I mean, we're we're obviously very proud of the way that the funds performed. Oh, so you should be. It, it does appear, um, as an outsider looking at this occasionally, um, that a lot of retail money especially in the U.S., has been chasing this higher. I guess it falls into the whole uh, meme uh, kind of uh, the GameStop and all that sort of stuff that we saw uh, from all the, the guys sitting at home with their um, stimulus money and, uh, and punting the markets. It does seem to have got sort of caught up in this as well. Do you think that's going to ensure that we get more regulation in this space? Are we heading for a far more regulated market in, in Bitcoin? Well, I, I think... Um, in cryptocurrency generally, I think you're going to find, and we've already seen it this year, the SEC taking action against some of the um, DeFi providers. So the decentralized finance coins uh, like BlockFi, who were sort of paying interest on people's cryptocurrency holdings. And essentially, they were issuing securities and the SEC fined them $50 million and uh, were uh, you know, quite hard on them about um, not accepting American clients. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And... The vast majority of assets in this class are securities and have not followed securities law. And that's a fact. Bitcoin is not one of those things. We know that Bitcoin is not a security. No money was ever raised. No money was ever distributed from the, you know, the, the person or people that started it. And you know, we know it's pretty immune to that kind of um, regulatory hit. So I think regulation is going to benefit some of the assets in the class. I think it's going to take some of the other assets to zero. Um, and I think some other people are probably going to jail. So um, it's going to be quite an interesting. And so they should. You know, there's been a lot of fraud in the sector. Um, it, it's been it's something that we as a fund have to overcome. And um, because, we, you know, 
I see those guys as working against all our interests. Um, there's a lot of people doing the right thing, um, investing in assets in the right way, and, and there's a lot of people that aren't. So, um, you, you know, I welcome the regulation that's coming. Uh, I think ultimately be helpful for the whole sector. I think helpful for our fund, uh, and definitely in that retail space, that there's a need for better protection and education. And you know, I, I would say you know, 90% of the assets that are out there, if you look through that market cap table. And their destiny is zero. Mm. There's um, there's a lovely clip on. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this on CNBC where they're they're talking crypto and and the uh, the anchor asks a, a lady, uh, you know that Dogecoin was started as a joke, and she looks and goes, well, yes, of course I did, as if you know you're complete idiots. But but does the things like Dogecoin really sort of um, add the negativity to the whole space? Does that do you no good at all? Well, actually. Uh, Dogecoin is, is an interesting example because it was started as a joke, right? So essentially what the guys that started that, they, they copied the Bitcoin software, called it Dogecoin, <laughs> and continued running it on their own computers. So it doesn't have anywhere near the mining capacity, security of Bitcoin, whatever else, right? But it proved something. You can't just copy the software and it be successful, right? You, you'll never get a decentralized network if you do that. Um, and... That's the reason that Dogecoin, like in 12 months since whatever March last year, is down 85% from where it was, right? Because, so I actually think they're valuable proofs uh, for the Bitcoin argument. So people say, well, I'll just copy the software and do it myself, and mm. there'll be 22 million of mine, and it'll, it'll be better. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You can't build decentralized networks that way. So yeah. sort of... I view them as sort of attacks on Bitcoin, but they're great tests and they're, they're, they're great test cases because they prove the point. And the point is, it's not replicable. And if you invest in something claiming to be a replica, you're going to lose your money. And everybody that bought Dogecoin last year has lost their money. Uh, and is it Dogecoin or I always call it Dogecoin? I think that's a better characterization. <laughs> I think officially it's Dogecoin, but yeah, Dogey's better. I think dodgy works for me. Um, now, now um, Daniel, our listeners can't see this, but I can. And, and behind you in the studio where you're you're talking, you have um, you have the Bitcoin formula as your backdrop. And I know that if you go to the listed reserve website and sign up for the um, for the updates, that pops up as well. And that fascinated me. It looks fantastic. I've got to say. Yeah, that, it's a copy of the Genesis block. So um, yeah, you'll see it on the website. So in in the Genesis block. So this is the, the first block ever produced on Bitcoin. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto embedded a headline from the Times that year, uh, which was the Chancellor's on the brink of a second bailout um, back in 2009. And they, that was sort of part of his thesis for building Bitcoin. But he embedded that headline uh, in what's known as the Genesis block. So it became a very famous string of numbers. And yet we use it underneath our uh, underneath our banner. So, yeah, it's there on the, on the website. And uh yeah, I, I think it will, will become even more famous as time time goes on. It's great, isn't it? It's like EM equals MC squared for, for crypto nerds. <laughs> well, yeah, all your crypto nerds will recognize what it is and other people uh, think it's uh, think it's a bit odd. But yeah, I'm 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 glad you're intrigued by it. I was. I've got to say, I, I didn't recognize it. I am not in, in the nerd category or even a crypto category, but I, I, did, I was fascinated by it, especially when I saw it on your website the first time. I thought, oh. That looks interesting. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's good. We're 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 quite uh, we're quite pleased with that uh, that banner. It's uh, it's got a good story behind it. Yeah. Now, now one of the things I guess that people uh, not maybe with Bitcoin, but in other cryptocurrencies, talk about is the ease of transaction, especially for um, you know blockchain transactions. The ASX is uh, pushing ahead with its blockchain, although they do seem to be getting further and further behind with that one. But when you look at apps like Wise, where you can transfer money to from one bank account to another, they, they talk about 20 seconds. And I've used it for my son when he's run out of money in far off climbs of London or Berlin or whatever. And it's almost instantaneous. I can send money to him, thankfully. Um, and the same with CBA apps. Does that make crypto um, not redundant? But is that, that a problem with crypto that it's not as easy to transact sometimes as those things are? Well, I think in the case, the two that you've given, CBA works beautifully in Australia. So you and I, you know, on the CBA app, especially now that we've got um, instant instant payments in Australia, uh, it, it works very well. Um, now, internationally, again, as you say, WISE is good once you've got your account set up. Sending money to other people uh, is relatively straightforward. But we're sort of, um, I suppose, financially sophisticated people compared to the rest of the world, right? You've got a bank account, your son's got a bank account, wherever he is, uh, and it's no big deal for the two of you to transact using those things. You've obviously gone to the trouble of opening those accounts, which takes time. You've maintained them, you've KYC'd them, um, and all the rest of it. Now, in the case of, I'll give you an example. We've got somebody that does, um, it, for those people on our newsletter, we always lead with a, with a piece of artwork or a sort of cartoon, a meme, something like that. So the person that does these, we found we found them on social media and we pay them every week um, in Bitcoin, right? Now, we don't even know if it's a man or a woman. <laughs> We've never met them. We don't know what country they're in and we've never asked, right? We just send them, we want these drawings, back they come and they send us an invoice on Lightning and we pay them, right? Now, now I don't know, they could be in uh, the jungles of... Brazil, we don't know, um, but Bitcoin works anywhere, everywhere. It's agnostic. It doesn't, you know, you don't need a bank account and you can participate in the economy, whoever you are. That's the whole, that's the whole point. And, um, you know, so there are lots of circumstances where it's tremendously useful. And, and I don't dispute that there are alternatives in traditional finance um, that work well. I just don't think they work as well as um, cryptocurrency. I guess part of that attraction that you're talking about in that anonymity and, and the fact that you can use it all over the place without uh, it being traced to some extent is part of its its reputation and from days gone by in terms of the, the dark web drug dealers. Uh, now we've got, you know, the Russians could be circumventing sanctions by using Bitcoin or that sort of stuff. That that probably has given it a bit of a, a bad rap, at least for some of the people like myself who are, are pretty new to this uh, this investment category. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, and you know, look, it's absolutely true that um, Russians can use Bitcoin. It's also absolutely true that Ukrainians can use it. And, and, and they absolutely have during this sort of recent conflict. They raised a lot of money with cryptocurrency uh, when the banks were down. So um, as I say, this software, it, it doesn't discriminate, right? And, and that's the whole point. If you look at the US dollar, which has essentially been weaponized through SWIFT, that's not going to happen with this software. And that's going to have good consequences because the people that we consider good um, will use it and the people we consider bad will use it. 
use it too, right? It doesn't make a judgment. That's the point. Now, mm -hmm. some people think that's unfortunate uh, and bad, but in fact, you can't have a currency where every person in the world can participate without barrier and then insist, oh, apart from this case, I'd like a barrier <laughs> for, for this case. It doesn't work like that. It's either open source and everyone can use it or it's not. And you've got to take the negative consequence um, with the good. And it, it overwhelmingly is good. Um, but I don't dispute that there are people that use cryptocurrencies uh, in a nefarious way. But, but the number one transaction mechanism for matters nefarious remains the US dollar. I, I was going to say, I've seen enough movies in my time where people have got a uh, suitcase full of cash or there's the money laundering aspect or the drug cartel that's just got money that they doesn't know what to do with. It's, you know, um, so fiat money, for sure, is used for many, many nefarious purposes as well, as you rightly point out. I mean, if you look at, if you look at, at, at Bitcoin, right, it's a terrible, terrible thing to use for crime because every transaction is linked to the its predecessors, right? Mm -hmm. So now the FBI love it if people use Bitcoin because they can just trace transactions all the way back to where they originally came from to the point that someone bought on an exchange. It's really easy for them to identify who's who, which is exactly how the Silk Road collapsed in the end, right? They, that's how they caught Ross Albright. So, mm -hmm. um, so it, it's not actually a, a good idea and to use Bitcoin if you are doing something you ought not to. And I, I think there's a greater awareness of that now. Certainly, the, you know, law enforcement has found um, Bitcoin to be tremendously helpful. <laughs> well, that's good to know when I'm doing something that I shouldn't be. I will not pay in Bitcoin. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. Now, now, Daniel, do you think there's, um, you know, Bitcoin's obviously come a long way since its inception. Uh, and you've been involved with Bitcoin for since how long you've been involved in it? Well, yeah, 2014, 2015. So you're a you're a veteran, really, in this very new space, I guess. Um, do you think there's kind of watershed moments coming up or has been watershed moments where, you know, the, the general public, the, the people that don't understand crypto, that don't understand Bitcoin, it will go more mainstream. It will just become so much more part of the investment conversation. Do you think there's something on the horizon that will change this? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that thing is the ETFs, right? So I think when we get an, a proper, we have a futures ETF in in the US. We don't have a spot ETF, which I find extraordinary. But um, nonetheless, when we get that Bitcoin ETF in America and when we get a Bitcoin ETF in Australia, it will be hugely more straightforward for people to participate because they can participate from their brokerage account. Um, I think it will give advisors a lot more comfort that um, the asset class is here to say, and they can interact with things that they understand and platforms that they understand. Um, and I think that will come in Australia. I expect it to come this year. Um, I, I'm not so sure that it will come in the US this year. Um, but I think once we get that and we get that Bitcoin ETF and something else is happening in Australia this year, the Commonwealth Bank are going to start selling Bitcoin in their banking app, not their Comsec app, which I'm interested to see how that plays out. Once you start seeing it um, hit the mainstream in that way, I think we'll start to see a shift in people's in people's thinking. I think we're already there in the it's here to stay conversation. I think people accept that now, it, but it's here to stay. And then we, we're still facing that question. And how do I buy it? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and there aren't that, you know, there aren't easy mechanisms for people to buy it. You go to an exchange and do you know if you're buying Bitcoin? Yeah. What, what do you get? So yeah. 
uh, and people don't need know how to validate the assets that they're buying, which is one of the sort of um, value propositions of our fund, because we obviously check that what we buy is in fact Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, I, I think when you see those Bitcoin inside vehicles that people are familiar with, which, which would be the ETFs, I think you'll see it um, sort of move into the next stratosphere. Yeah, it's funny because you see on the side of buses, you know, buy Bitcoin today and some shopping centers, there's a machine you can actually buy Bitcoin on. I mean, what are you getting in with those machines? What what? It's not like a little coin drops out the bottom of the thing, is it? No, no, it spits out a QR code. And then when you scan the QR code, it'll put the Bitcoins in your um, in your wallet. Right. Um, yes, yeah, so they're called Bitcoin ATMs. Um, yeah, and they're, they're, I don't recommend them actually because they're extremely expensive to use. So you'd be paying somewhere from 7 to 10% to use an ATM. Wow. Um, so I, I wouldn't recommend it. And actually on the exchanges in Australia, you can pay some sort of crazy fees in terms of spread and all the rest of it. You know, you'd be paying somewhere from 5 to 7%. Um, again, we, we buy all our assets over the counter, so we, we don't really um, engage with that kind of what I consider price gouging. So what, what you... Yeah, what you really want to see is highly liquid vehicles available to the uh, to the public on a credible listed exchange, and then you know you know you're going to be getting in at the right price, a good price, and and you can get out again safely. Uh, and what what do you think's holding the U.S. If you're talking in Australia getting an ETF this year? What do you think's holding the U.S. back? These guys are usually at the forefront of uh, technological changes, and certainly in the ETF market, they've got thousands and thousands of the things. Yeah, and so, well, their, um, in my view, extraordinary claim is that they believe um, that there's too much manipulation of the Bitcoin price um, for there to be an ETF. Now, they then went and approved a Bitcoin futures ETF, right? <laughs> but of course, as you know, the futures price is derived from the spot price, mm. uh, not the other way around. So um, it, it's extraordinary that you could approve a futures product and not a spot product. Um, mm. And, you know, to me, the purest market of all is the Bitcoin market. It trades 24-7. There's never any intervention, right? So if it falls 30% in a day, nobody steps in and says, right, the exchange is now closed. <laughs> like, look at nickel last week. I was, was going to say the LME nickel market. I mean, 145-year-old institution, what a debacle. Oh, it's, it's embarrassing, right? And, th mm. and then, of course... You, but can you have metals ETFs? Of course you can. And yet mm. there's huge intervention in those markets. Um, they're not, I don't consider them pure markets. I, I think they're manipulated and yet it's okay on that hand. So I, I think Bitcoin's held to a very, very high standard, which ultimately will benefit us, but holds us back a little bit at the moment. Um, and in the end, the Americans, they're going to have to relent because ETFs are popping up. There's one in Canada one in the UK, there's one in Germany, you know, can America really go last with a Bitcoin ETF? I think it's embarrassing. So they're going to have to move soon. Um, and they're certainly going to have to move before sort of 2024 when the supply of Bitcoin drops by half again uh, and the supply pressure continues to build. You certainly wouldn't want to throw a US ETF onto the market at that point um, because the price would likely explode. So um, I, I think they'll move before 2024, um, but I don't think it will be this year. Right. Going back to the LME, I remember when I was uh, a young man starting out in um, in finance, I used to go down to the LME rings with a mate of mine and I'd go on the floor and watch them trade for the five minutes of they'd go through the zinc market and the lead market and the nickel market. It was fascinating, but and they still do it. It's antiquated. I just, you know, it just seems crazy that they're still doing 
open outcry five minute trading in in commodities that are so important around the world no no it, it's in, it's insane and and mm. it clearly can't handle um modern geopolitical conditions right no it just cannot and um i i think again um the, the people stood in the pit there shouting are going to be replaced by software before too long yeah i i must admit i know that uh, the lme has electronic uh, pricing as well and the, the ring is kind of more theater than anything else but um one thing i, I will ask you before we go when you talk about this halving yes how does that work how can you run me through that because i've always sort of scratched my head about that one yeah so um the way the bitcoin supply curve works um in the beginning there were 50 bitcoins every 10 minutes okay and then every four years the reward to miners is cut in half so right. Um, roughly from 2009 to 2013, there were 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. Then it halved to 25. Then it halved to 12 and a half. Then it halved to 6.25, which is you know where we are today. And that is the way that we ultimately get to the 21 million, right? So the, the supply curve um, goes up very steeply to begin with. So we get to 18 million actually quite quickly in the sort of 11 years we've been going. And then we go from 18 million to 21 million coins over the next sort of 115 years, right? So the supply curve slows down very, very steeply, which is essentially what's um, what's, what's pushing the price up. Um, and in the next halving is in 2024. We'll be down to three and a quarter coins every 10 minutes, uh, and things will will get interesting. Right. Okay, 2024, it's in my diary. Now, Daniel, before we go, uh, I've got to ask you this because there's many high-profile commentators that make pronouncements about how, how high Bitcoin can go. I guess Kathy Wood is one of those, and we've, we've seen many people talk about it. Where do you see you know, Bitcoin in five years' time? Let's not go short-term. Let's, let's, let's talk about five years' time. What sort of price could we see Bitcoin at? Well, I think, I mean... Bitcoin, one Bitcoin is always going to be worth one Bitcoin, right? What's actually happening is that fiat currencies are going to zero because right. that's their destiny, right? Every fiat currency in history has gone to zero and all the ones we have today are going to zero, right? Right, And all hard assets um, are going to go up in fiat currency terms. Now, the speed at which that happens depends on their relative scarcity. I think Bitcoin is probably one of the more scarce assets out there. And so I'm, you know, circling your question without giving you an answer. You um, are. <laughs> <laughs> and very well. You are doing very well with it. I am. Um, and, you know, I try and resist making predictions for people about what's going to happen to the Bitcoin price. I think what, what people should really do is convince themselves just how scarce Bitcoin is and just how much more scarce it's going to become. And that its supply curve is defined. It's never going to change. They can prove it for themselves and they should make their own judgment. I think the best I can do for you is that in five years it will be higher. Well, I think that's a very diplomatic answer and a very intelligent answer rather than the pronouncements that you hear from the talking heads on TV from time to time who usually are pushing their own boat because they're um, they're long to the gunnels of Bitcoin and, uh, and hoping more than anything else that it will be $500,000 or $200,000 or whatever they think it's going to be. But I think, you know, we we were, I mean, I was in a group, I can't remember when it was, 
what year it would have been now, but it was sort of 2016. I remember a long, long discussion about um, getting to the to the sort of thousand dollar mark, and you know how um, sort of amazing would that be? And then you know, will it get to ten thousand dollars? And you know, it, it, and all those hurdles have been crossed, right? The, these order of magnitude shifts. It's not like we hope that they'll happen. They have happened. Uh, and I think they'll continue to happen. It's just a matter of time. It's it's funny as well at the moment. Bitcoin's been very um, stable. It's been very steady. I, I know it's it's come off a lot from those heady heights of what sixty five, sixty seven thousand bucks. Um, but you know, through all this turmoil uh, that we're seeing and the tragic events in Ukraine, it has been relatively stable. I yeah. Guess. Well, if you look at it year over year, it's basically flat, right? Yeah. So, what else is flat year over year? I don't know. The Nasdaq's probably down twenty percent. Facebook's down fifty percent. You know, there's all sorts of things that have sort of come crashing down to earth, including bonds. I might add. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's done. The more you zoom out, the better it performs. Yeah. No, it's it's certainly uh, it's been a, a fantastic conversation, Daniel. I really, really appreciate your time today, and you've cleared up a lot of uh, the questions that I had, and I'm sure a lot of questions that um, that. Uh, many of our listeners will have as well so thank you once again for being on the show today really really do appreciate it. i think we're gonna to have to have you back on because it's such a a massive subject that maybe we're gonna to have to catch up in six months or, or whatever and, and talk again yeah i'd love to come back and thank you so much for having me Andy. mate it's it's been a pleasure and lovely to meet you and good luck with the fund i don't think you need my luck because you're doing so well all by yourself thank you very much great thanks daniel Cheers. bye now